day, continuing on our study in the book of Exodus and uh, looking specifically at the uh, civil law. Really exciting topic. Now, some of these uh, laws are actually broken down a little bit more in Deuteronomy, Numbers, you'll see some of them brought up. Exodus are kind of the, kind of the skeleton of the civil law, and uh, so I'm focusing on that. I'm not going to be jumping around a lot to other passages uh, to elaborate. I'm just going to just focus on what Exodus says about them. Um, we've looked at the first one, uh, at the, uh, the master and servant relationship. Uh, that was a pretty exciting uh, topic last week. Enjoyed that. If you don't have the blank, it's a a servant letter A. Pictures a sinner in bondage to sin. I'm not going to re-preach it. Don't worry. Uh, Letter B, a servant set free by the master is a picture of salvation through Christ. And then letter C, a servant that loves his master could choose to serve him willingly after he is freed. This picture is the believer's freedom to choose to serve the Lord after salvation. I think that's important. Don't ever let anybody tell you that <clears throat> because you're saved, you're automatically serving. And if you're not, you're not saved. I've had people tell me that. Uh, they say that about people that aren't serving the Lord, that somehow they're not saved. Um, <clears throat> that would, that would, you would lose that whole aspect of it being a free choice. Uh, that's almost a Calvinism in serv- in the, as a believer, you know, not, not just for salvation, but also for service. Uh, and my thought is this, if God's going to choose you to be saved, then he should also choose you to be obedient. <laughs> Amen. But uh, we're not Calvinists, so we don't believe that. Uh, he doesn't choose uh, for you to be saved. He doesn't choose in your place. If he would, then you would be saved if he would choose in your place. But he, he, uh, he didn't. He left that up to you. The Bible says he's not willing that any should perish, but that doesn't mean that he chooses for people. He lets them choose for themselves. And the same way after salvation, as far as service is concerned and discipleship, you have to decide whether you want to be a disciple of the Lord or not. You have to decide whether you want to love the Lord or love the world. That's a decision of your own soul. And uh, so anybody that teaches you otherwise Number one, probably has no idea about dealing with people, never has dealt with people before, probably sits in a room studying books and reading and never really dealt with people in a practical way because it's just, it's a fairy tale to think that every believer, once they're saved, automatically just serves God. Uh, there's, there's aspects of being backslidden. Uh, Hebrews chapter 10, 38 talks about that. If any man draw back, the Bible says that he's not pleased with them. Amen. Uh, so we, we draw back, but it says we are not of them that draw back unto perdition. So that means that there's no way that we can draw back so far that you can lose your salvation. But he says you can draw back so far as not to please me with your life. And so that is a decision we need to make as well to continue to move forward and not to backslide. And so uh, here I said I wasn't going to preach liturgy. Uh, female slaves were to be protected. We looked at that. And now we're going to look at number two. Punishment for murder. So the Lord has a very strict view of murder in the Bible. Uh, the moral losses, thou shalt not kill. And, he, and then we break, break that down into specifics when we get into the civil law. So letter A, God, the giver of life, protects life by punishing the murderer. 
those that willfully murder would be put to death. And so there's an aspect to this that we need to discern, and that's in Exodus 21 12. It says, He that smiteth a man so that he die shall be surely put to death. And in verse number 14, it also says, But if a man come presumptuously upon his neighbor to slay him with guile, thou shalt take him from mine altar that he may die. And so there he gives us some insight into what constitutes a murder. Uh, the first thing is presumptuously. That means that he's, all, he's already seething in his soul about this person, wanting to see them dead. You know, it has a murder in their heart. And that's why the Bible says you've got hatred in your heart towards a brother, you're already a murderer. And so and then it says, uh, th- then it goes on to say, to slay him with guile. That means with shrewdness or craftiness or prudence. Uh, prudence is foreseeing something. And so when it's talking about guile, a person that murders foresees it and plans it out beforehand. And that's, that's how you determine whether this is murder or maybe it's an accidental slaying. Maybe they were just fighting and it got a little rough. His, his desire wasn't really to kill him. Uh, you know how men can be, you know, and it, it happens. And so that, that's the determination that judges make in the scripture. We know that capital punishment is something that the Lord provided in Genesis 9, verse number 6, the first time he mentioned this. It says, Whoso sheddeth man's blood, by man shall his blood be shed, for in the image of God made he man. And so we're supposed to have a very sacred view towards another person because God made them in the image of God. Amen. And so we have to uh, very much have a reverence towards the creation of God simply because he made man and they belong to him. Amen. And for us to murder someone that's made the image of God is us to really be irreverent towards the Lord as well. Letter B, God provided safety for those that killed accidentally or unintentionally by appointing a place of refuge. We see the first laying out of this principle here in Exodus. This is a picture of Christ, our refuge from the destruction of sin. And so the passage we see here is in verse number 13. It says, And if a man lie not in wait, but God deliver him into his hand, then I will appoint thee a place whither he shall flee. And so we don't have a lot of detail in relation to these places here in Exodus, but later on, there's a lot more detail that's given. They're called they're cities of refuge. So when the, um, when the land was divided and the priests were given certain cities because they weren't given land, they were actually given cities to look, look over. There were certain cities that God determined would be, you can't see that very well, <laughs> but cities of refuge. And I'll just point them out here. This is Israel. Uh, here you have one in Heshbon. Golan, Ramoth Gilead on this side of the Jordan, Shechem was one, Hebron was another, and Kadesh was another up there. So notice how they're nicely spread out throughout Israel, because no matter where you are, you want to be able to flee to them if you've accidentally killed someone. Of course, someone that perhaps wanted to kill someone would also flee, uh, thinking they could get away with it, but that uh, through the the uh, process of the judges and the high priest, they would be found guilty or not guilty, and that's just the way it was. And so they would be given an opportunity to be kept safe uh, from the person that, maybe the brother of the person they killed, or whatever it may be. Uh, because you know how it was back then, you know, the law of the West. <laughs> Amen. 
That means everybody just becomes the executioner. That's the way things used to be. It's not like that today. Praise the Lord. Amen. Uh, Numbers 35, verse 10, it says this, Speak unto the children of Israel and say unto them, When ye be come over Jordan into the land of Canaan, that ye shall appoint you cities to be cities of refuge for you, that the slayer may flee thither, which killeth any person at unawares. And they shall be unto you cities for refuge from the avenger, that the manslayer die not until he stand before the congregation in judgment. Um, a New Testament passage we have is in Hebrews 6, verse 18, tying this to the Lord. It says that by two immutable things in which it was impossible for God to lie, we might have a strong consolation who have fled for refuge to lay hold upon the hope set before us. And so that ties itself into the Old Testament illustration of these cities. You're running towards, you're fleeing towards the refuge. And that's what the Lord wanted us to, wanted us to see in that typology there. Um, when someone comes to Christ genuinely over their sinful state, they will find mercy and forgiveness. Uh, some say they have come to Christ, but they only care about getting out of the consequence, not not, not the sin itself. And I want to give you a couple of illustrations here. This is very interesting to me. I've thought a lot on these over the years. One is a man by the name of Adonijah in the scripture. You know, he was a son of David. Uh, he was the, um, the brother to Absalom. And so what happened is David was getting old. Uh, he was really close to death. And Adonijah, who was one of the older sons, said, you know, well, my dad can't do this anymore, so I'm going to set myself up as king. And so he got everybody on his side. He even got some, uh, some important generals on his side. The, the, uh, they named a feast. They had the whole thing, and he claimed, he declared himself king over, <laughs> over Judah, over Israel. And so in 1 Kings 1.5, it says, Then Adonijah, the son of Haggith, exalted himself, saying, I will be king, and he prepared him chariots and horsemen and 50 men to run before him. Because then, you know, when you made a big splash like that, it would convince the people this is legitimate, and that's what he did. But what happened is, word got to Bathsheba, the mother of Solomon. Now, Solomon was really supposed to be the next king, and so she went and talked to David about that, and David, of course, knew nothing about Adonijah doing this, and so he declared, okay, you know, Solomon will be king. And so what he did is he gave uh, Solomon his cloak, his, his, uh, his horse that he rode on, and he gave him his ring and so forth and let him walk and, and had the prophet lead him through the streets declaring Solomon as the king while this feast was going on. And so that was kind of a downer on the party, amen? And so everybody heard this and they were all afraid, they were afraid of what is going to happen because they knew that Solomon was appointed by David himself and Adonijah was really just usurping the throne here. And so they all fled, like, like rats in a, you know, like that. Um, so what does Adonijah do in this situation? Now it says in 1 Kings 1.50, it says, And Adonijah feared because of Solomon and arose and went <coughs> and caught, <coughs> excuse me, and caught hold on the horns of the altar. This is an interesting thing. I think I may have that graphic up there, unless it didn't show up. And so they have Adonijah going into the, the temple and grabbing onto the horns of that altar. 
Now, what's that all about? Well, the altar is a picture truly of the cross of Calvary. It's a picture of the judgment that was going to be placed upon the Lord Jesus Christ for our sins. That's where all of the sacrifices would be made. All of the burnt offerings were made upon that altar. And so the horns in the Bible are always a picture of power. And so when he grabbed on those horns, he was banking on the power of forgiveness, that I will be given mercy. Now that's true. <clears throat> you run to the cross, you grab a hold of that cross, and you trust in Christ, you will be forgiven. And that's the picture we have there. But is he sincere? That's really my question here. And so, <laughs> and it says here, <clears throat> and it was told Solomon saying, Behold, Adonijah feareth King Solomon, for lo, he hath caught hold on the horns of the altar, saying, Let King Solomon swear unto me today that he will not slay his servant with the sword. And Solomon said, If he will show himself a worthy man, there shall not an hair of him fall to the earth. But if wickedness shall be found in him, he shall die. Wow. So, so we tend to think, Oh no, as long as I say I'm sorry. You know, that's all that matters. Well, not to the Lord and not to truly true judgment that we see in the word of God in scriptures. You know, there's a lot of people that'll pray a prayer. It doesn't mean they got saved, folks. And, and sadly, I probably led people to Christ that way in my life. And I'm being very careful these days not to do that because they can't just pray a prayer to get saved. It's all about Christ and turning to him and trusting in who he is and what he did and why he had to do it in the first place because of my sin. And that's why I'm repentant. That's why I go to Christ and I'm sorrowful because my sin placed him on the cross of Calvary. My sin killed him. I crucified him. And that's the mentality I have to get to before I pray a sinner's prayer. Amen. Not just pray this prayer and you're just going to one, two, three, pray with me and you go into heaven. That's just not it. You can't get saved that way. And unfortunately, when you do stuff like that and you just pray a prayer and you don't really teach them what's really happening, they go on for years sometimes thinking, oh, I prayed that prayer and I'm saved and they're really not. Nothing has changed. You know, they don't want to go to church. They don't care about the things of God, <laughs> folks. Uh, like I said, you know, you don't, you don't become an automatic servant but when Jesus Christ comes in your heart, something changes in you. I know what happened to me. It changed night and day. It really did. But you know what? I still had to make choices. I, I had to, I backslid for a while. And then I had to make a choice to get right. All these things are still in play after you get saved. Amen. And so uh, Adonijah grabs a hold of this altar. Solomon says, hey, if you show yourself worthy, I'll let you live. If, you, if wickedness be found in you, then you're going to die. And so basically, he doesn't trust Adonijah. But you know what? He's willing to extend mercy because he grabbed on the horns of the altar. Amen? And anybody that says, hey, I'm sorry, I shouldn't have done that, extend mercy towards them. But that doesn't mean from now on they're best buddies and you got to somehow go live with them or whatever because there is a time of trial, especially when it comes to relationships. You know, I've had many situations like that where someone did something and then they thought, if I forgive them, then that means I've got to be with them and I, I don't trust them. No, no, <laughs> forgiving them does not mean you have to be with them. <laughs> forgiving them is you offering mercy to them and not holding against them what they've done to you. Amen? 
But that doesn't mean you've got to, you, you've got to connect in fellowship because like with any situation, you only fellowship with people that are right with God, not with people that are wrong with God. Amen? doesn't matter who they are, you know? And so we got to be careful about that. And so Solomon had that same mentality. So King Solomon sent, and they brought him down from the altar, and he came and bowed himself to King Solomon, and Solomon said unto him, Go to thine house. And so, sounds good. Everything's great, except did Adonijah honor that? Did he, was he truly repented in his heart? Well, what we find here in, in 1 Kings chapter 2, we have Adonijah approaching Bathsheba. And Adonijah, it says in verse 13, the son of Haggith come, came to Bathsheba, the mother of Solomon, and she said, Comest thou peaceably? And he said, Peaceably. He said, Moreover, I have somewhat to say unto thee. And she said, Say on. He said, Thou knowest that the kingdom was mine, and that all Israel set their faces on me, that I should reign. Howbeit the kingdom is turned about, and is become my brother's, for it was his from the Lord. <clears throat> now I ask one petition of thee, deny me not. And she said unto him, Say on. This doesn't sound good already. It says, And he said, Speak, I pray thee, unto Solomon the king, for he will not say thee nay, that he give me Abishag <clears throat> the Shunammite. Could somebody give me, um, Levi, can you give me a, a, a glass of water from the back? They forgot to bring one today. Anyway, sorry. That he give me Abishag the Shunammite to wife. Now, Abishag was the lady or the young girl that was brought to David when he was dying to keep him warm. He was an old man. He was dying. He couldn't retain heat in his body anymore. Uh, it, there was nothing uh, you know, bad going on here. All she did was lay by him as a heater, keeping his body warm. That was her whole purpose, taking care of the king. Uh, they, she wasn't his wife. She wasn't his girlfriend, anything like that, but very close to the king. So now Adonijah comes and says, I want that girl. Like, Aren't there other girls in, in Israel, you know? He wants that one that was known to be with King David. That's interesting. And so uh, Bathsheba said, Well, I will speak for thee unto the king. Bathsheba therefore went unto King Solomon to speak unto him for Adonijah. And the king rose up to meet her and bowed himself unto her and sat down on his throne and caused the seat to be set for the king's mother. And she sat on his right hand then she said, I desire one small petition of thee. I pray thee, say me not nay. And the king said unto her, Ask on, my mother, for I will not say thee nay. And she said, Let Abishag the Shunammite be given to Adonijah, thy brother, to wife. And King Solomon answered and said to his mother, Remember, Solomon was wise above most men, or all men. It says, And said unto his mother, And why dost thou ask Abishag the Shunammite for Adonijah? Ask for him the kingdom also, for he is mine elder brother, even for him, and for Abiathar the priest, and for Joab the son of Zeruiah. Then King Solomon sware by the Lord, saying, God do so to me, and more also, if Adonijah hath not spoken this word against his own life. Now therefore, as the Lord liveth, which hath established me, and set me on the throne of David my father, and who hath made me in house as he had promised, Adonijah shall be put to death this day. 
And King Solomon sent by the hand of Benaiah, the son of Jehoiada, and he fell upon him that he died. Wow. And so Solomon, oh, thank you. (laughs) Solomon determined that this was not a sincere thing that he was looking for. He was looking for some kind of an in with the kingdom again. And he thought that he was not truly repentant when he grabbed the horns of that altar. So, so today he should die. You know, that's happened before. Remember Shimei. Shimei was the guy that cursed David along the hills as David went out. And David came back and, and he, didn't, he didn't punish him. But he told Solomon, he said, remember Shimei. <laughs> he said he, he did evil and he was of the sons of Saul. And, uh, and because of that, uh, David warned Solomon, you, you have to deal with him. I made my promise, I would not, but you have to. And so Solomon said, hey, Shimei, he talked to him, he says, as long as you stay on that, in that area right there, I'll let you, let you be. But it got word back to him that some of his servants escaped. He left out of the province, came back, and thought everything was good, but it came back to Solomon that he had left. So he called him up, he says, I told you to stay, and he killed him, just like that. See, these are tests that, that are put in our life, you know? I mean, we say that we've gotten right, but that doesn't mean we're right. If we're right, that means that we've changed our mind about things. We're going in a different direction, <laughs> amen? Adonijah didn't mean that. Another example we see here in the next chapter, it's interesting because, it, or in the same chapter at the end, it says 1 Kings 2.28, then tidings came to Joab, for Joab had turned after Adonijah, Though he turned not after Absalom. And Joab fled unto the tabernacle of the Lord and caught hold on the horns of the altar. So here you have Joab, who was one of David's mighty men, one of three brothers that were the top men in David's army. Joab, what he did after David told him not to, he went and killed Abner, who was the general to Saul. And Abner, of course, was, was a, a brilliant general. But the thing is, David wanted to show him mercy because he was just simply being loyal to the king. But because Abner had killed his brother Asiel, remember that? Asiel was running after him and the Bible says that Asiel was swift as a deer and uh, Abner knew he couldn't outrun him. But he yelled back and he says, hey, turn back, Asiel. Why should I have to kill you? And he wouldn't. He kept on pursuing. So he took his spear and he put it backwards and put it under his fifth rib, I think it was fifth rib, and killed him. And left him on the, on the street, on the road there. So what did Joab do after David said not to? Calls Abner, deceives him that he just wanted to make things smooth between them and gets up close and stabs him under the fifth rib just like his brother was killed. And so guess what David did? Solomon, I want to tell you about Joab. <laughs> this is what he did. And sure enough, here we have uh, Solomon dealing with Joab as well. But Joab... Grabbed on the horns of the altar. Oh, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be, uh, they're going to let me go because of this. But the thing is, he was never repentant. He wasn't sorry for what he did. He wasn't, uh, he didn't think it was wrong, you know. And it goes on to say, and it was told King Solomon that Job was fled into the tabernacle of the Lord. And behold, he is by the altar. Then Solomon sent Benaiah, the son of Jehoiada, saying, go fall upon him. And Benaiah came to the tabernacle of the Lord and said unto him, Thus saith the king, Come forth. And he said, Nay, but I will die here. So right away, he's not even going to listen. 
And you want to kill me? Kill me here. That's a defined attitude he had. And Benaiah brought the king word again, saying, Thus saith Job, Joab, and thus he answered me. Then he said, Go and fall upon him. And he did. And he killed Joab by the altar. And so, so that's what I mean. Like A lot of people, they just think, Oh, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. It's going to clear you. <laughs> it doesn't clear you. It takes a change of your heart. Amen. So we saw Solomon giving it Adonijah a chance, and God does it with us. He gives us a chance. Lord, I'm sorry. He says, I'm going to give you a chance. But then what happens? You show that you weren't sincere. All I'm saying is this, be careful, because you never know when that next time the Lord says, you know, I've given you enough chances. You know, you're, you're, you're out to hurt, hurt the cause of Christ. And you know, we can't take that for granted, the forgiveness of God. No, I, I know he'll forgive you over and over and over. We've all experienced that, amen? What I'm saying is this. Be not deceived. God is not mocked. For whatsoever man soweth, that shall he also reap. Amen? And so let's just be careful when we're talking about these kind of things. All right? Let her see. God punished those that smote or cursed their mother and father with death. And then you see that in Exodus 21, 15. And he that smiteth his father... Or his mother shall surely be put to death. Verse 17. And he that curseth his father or his mother shall surely be put to death. So not only just smiting, but cursing. He's not even talking about killing your mother and father. He's saying if you curse or smite them, you should be put to death. So that tells you that God has a very reverent perspective or attitude towards parental authority in the home and the position a parent has over the kids. And the kids, a child that would do that to their parents, God would say, you know what? They're better off dead. Wow. Now, that wouldn't happen today. <laughs> you know, there'd be a lot of dead kids out there, you know, because kids do some terrible things to parents these days. In fact, it's one of the characteristics of the last days. It says they'd be disobedient to parents, you know, cursing parents. Oh, that's wicked before God. You know, they're worthy of death when they do that. Think about that. And so we need to teach that to our kids, that reverence toward their parents in the home, that they should never talk back. They should never do things like that. And I know the world, I think I read something today where the world, hey, it's okay to question authority. It's okay, you know. Hey, I get asking questions, but that's not what they're saying. They're saying undermine. That's what the world is saying. It's okay to ask questions if you don't understand why there's a rule in place and all that. Great, we'll explain it to you, because usually there's a reason, <laughs> amen? Even if the reason is just, just the way I like it, kids. <laughs> you know, that's a good enough reason. And you, you still have to obey. You know, just because you don't like it doesn't mean now you've, given the, you've been given the excuse, now I don't have to obey my parents, amen, unless it's against the word of God. Then you do have the, the onus not to obey your parents in that thing. Amen. So very important stuff here. He's giving out these principles in how they ought to behave as children of God. So the place that a mother and father have in a child's life is the closest to the relationship God has with his children. There is nothing as, as intimate, as, as closely intimate as our relationship with God, as our relationship with our parents. Amen. And God made it that way. And so God's saying, if you could do that to your parents, you would do it to me. You know what I mean? 
And so the Lord is establishing this reverence towards mom and dad, which is important. Uh, so attacking your parents is attacking the Lord. I believe it. Letter D, God punished with death those that would force someone to slavery. So here we see again that servanthood and slavery in the Old Testament wasn't what maybe the woke crowd wants you to think the Bible says, that somehow they're for forcing people into slavery. Well, right here we have a law. Verse 16, And he that stealeth a man and selleth him, or if he be found in his hand, he shall surely be put to death. Amen? So these slavers in the States, whatever it was, whatever happened in Africa, there's no way that the Scriptures condone what they did. You can't go into a country, steal somebody, and then make them your slave in another country. The Bible says that's worthy of death. So if anybody ever tries to throw it at you, because you can hear it today. I've heard it several times from people in the Bible. Oh, the Bible is for slavery. And they just don't understand it because they've never studied the principles that are involved in the servant and master relationship like we talked about last week. Amen? And so slavery was not a forced issue. It was when someone exchanged themselves willingly for well-keeping because they were starving, they had no roof over their head, they were going to die, they couldn't take care of themselves, whatever it was. Uh, they, were, they made themselves a servant to that master, and now they were obligated to serve that master exclusively. And, but that was by choice. Amen? You can't just steal a man, <laughs> like the Bible says, all right? Uh, letter E. God punishes those that would cause the death of an unborn child. This is another thing. Wow. Boy, the world should listen to these laws. <laughs> Amen. It says in verse 22 of chapter 21, If men strive and hurt a woman with child so that her fruit depart from her and yet no mischief follow, he shall surely be punished according as, as a, woman's, a woman's husband will lay upon him and he shall pay as the judges determine. So, this is something that wasn't necessarily uh, on purpose, but it says if, there is two, if men were striving together and somehow the woman got involved, I, I can't tell you what this scenario is. In fact, many commentators are saying, we don't know what he's really talking about here, exactly the dynamics of it. But the fact of the matter is, if the baby may be premature delivery, something happens to the woman like that, the, the Bible says that that man should be punished for that act. And then it goes on to say here, it says, um, and if any mischief follow, then thou shalt give life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot. So whatever damage is done to that child or to that woman, the person that did it should pay equally. So if there was a death out of that situation, then that person should die. Now you look at abortion. Look at all these doctors that are killing babies. You know what? In all reality, scripturally, the Lord looks at them and says, you should die because you've taken that life. It's murder. It's premeditated, presumptuously, you know. So, let a ref. If a man would smite a servant and cause permanent physical damage, the servant would go free. So here we see another principle that the Lord is setting up here in verse 26. And if a man smite the eye of his servant or eye of his maid that had perish, he shall let him go free for his eye's sake. And if he smite out his manservant's tooth 
or his maidservant's tooth, he shall let him go free for his tooth's sake. So just because you were a servant and you had a servant did not mean that now you've got the right to hurt this person. <laughs> and God is establishing principles. Even if they lost a tooth, let them go free. Wow. <laughs> so that's not what the world is telling, telling us what the Bible is you know, for slavery. They think it's for whipping. It's absolutely not. God never condoned that type of behavior at all. Uh, letter G. Owners will be held responsible for neglecting safety in relation to cattle. And so uh, back then, we don't nowadays, how many, anybody have cattle in the room? Animals, farm animals? <laughs> so this isn't really, but you, dog, your dog is dangerous. <laughs> it's called cuddles. <laughs> I don't think cuddles going to hurt anybody. But do you know what it says here? This is the principle here in verse 28. If an ox gore a man or a woman that they die, then the ox shall be surely stoned and his flesh shall not be eaten, but the owner of the ox shall be quit. That means satisfied. You think, hey, it's okay. Kill the ox. Let's not eat the meat. Uh, it's a loss. But if the ox were wont to push with his horn in time past, and it hath been testified to his owner, and he hath not kept him in, but that, but that he hath killed a man or a woman, the ox shall be stoned, and his owner also shall be put to death. So basically he's saying this, if the owner knew that that animal was dangerous and had been told in the past and didn't listen, and if that animal went and hurt somebody or killed somebody, that owner would be put to death. So that could be a good principle looked at today because how many times do you hear of these dog attacks? I mean, they got these killer dogs. Oh, he's a sweet little... Bit. No, it's a killer dog. <laughs> I mean, they rip your throat out. They'll rip your face off. And somehow... You know, oh no, you know, you, you can't do anything to me. They need to be held responsible when they have an animal that they know could do damage to somebody. So there you have the scriptural principle right there in, in the civil law, you know. So that's why I'm saying a lot of these laws, even though they're not maybe in play today as far as our Canadian law, but they sure do show us justice. And I think our government would do well to read through these and say, okay, let's get back to, uh, you know, the basics and, and responsibility, you know. And so, if there be laid on him a son of mo- sum of money that he shall give for the ransom of his life, whatever is laid upon him, uh, whether he hath have gored a son or have gored a daughter, according to this judgment shall it be done unto him. If the ox shall push a manservant or a maidservant, he shall give unto the master 30 shekels of silver, and the ox shall be stoned. If a man shall open up a pit, or if a man shall dig a pit and not cover it, and an ox or an ass fall therein, the owner of the pit shall make it good and give money unto the owner of them, and the dead beast shall be his. And so there's a responsibility of taking care of other people's animals. You know, don't just do things that will cause harm to other people's animals and, and expect that you're not held responsible for it. So even your neighbor, think about it. Their dog or their caddy, as much as you don't like them, <laughs> you know, you can't go and kill that cat. And you can't trap them or things like that. Or even unknowingly do something that would actually kill that animal and expect not to be held responsible for it. You know, that's scriptural principle. I remember, I'm going to give you a story, but this really has nothing to do with this, but it's a good story. <laughs> My dad, it's his own cat, so it's not a problem. 
And so we, we had, my, my dad has been a, uh, a hunter of rodents his whole life. Uh, we, used to, we lived in the country there, and uh, so we've dealt with skunks, porcupines, beavers, uh, muskrats, um, raccoons. Now, this particular one was a raccoon. And what we heard one day, we were listening up in the attic, and there was just scuffling going on. It sounded like demons up there, and there were actually two raccoons fighting each other, tearing up the attic and all the insulation, everything up there. So my dad gets into hunter mode. You know he's not going to let this pass, right? Of course, it's happening every night. They're totally destroying his house up there. So he thinks he's got a great idea. He's going to set up a trap. The way they got there was this tree. This tree kind of gets really close to the roof, and they jump from the tree onto the roof, and then they climbed underneath and got into the attic. So he put this trap on there, and he baited it with fish. That's pretty good. (laughs) It might work. Uh, it did work, but the only thing, it, it first attracted our cat. And so our cat went up this tree and sure enough went for the bait. And we went out there the next day and saw our cat hanging from a chain off that branch <laughs> with a spike, you know, through the head. <laughs> like I said, my dad's a hunter. <laughs> it's, this isn't catch and release here. <laughs> So that's just one of the stories. But you know, once the cat was out of the way, and there was no more cat to worry about, he did it again. And the next day, there was a raccoon at the end of that chain. So he actually killed those raccoons, and he got one of them stuffed. And if you go to his house, you'll see it <laughs> sitting on a branch. You know, <laughs> It's his trophy. <laughs> oh, I could tell you stories. He would laugh all night about my dad and his uh, adventures. But anyways... <laughs> um, there was no response. You know, he killed his own cat. Amen. So it's not like he's responsible, though it did hurt the kids' feelings quite a bit. Uh, I don't know how he made that right. I don't remember. But anyways, uh, that's a story for you. <laughs> kind of associates with digging a pit and so forth. Amen. Okay. Um, so th- this is, it's just simply teaching responsibility with our animals and with the care of other people's animals. You know? So this whole mentality that, oh, well, it's there, you get this thing going. No, no, no. God says you're responsible for your animal, and especially if you know that animal could be dangerous. It's on you. Amen? And also, if you do something that causes harm to another person's animal, you're responsible. All right? So there's a principle. All right, let's move on.